introducing us to the first garden, which is the garden of Gethsemane, which is the garden of betrayal. And we saw in that from Wes's message that Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed and deserted by his friends and to be hated and slandered and misrepresented and to endure physical violence and even death. And so in the midst of our lives and what we're going through, Jesus empathizes with us. In the dark garden of this world, he can empathize because Jesus has endured. And I think that Jesus could endure because he knew on the other side of the garden of betrayal was a garden of victory. Reading from John chapter 19 verse 41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was another garden. And in that garden was a tomb in which no one had been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they had laid Jesus there. Now on the third day, sorry, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples and the one whom Jesus loved and said, loved and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And when the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where Jesus, where the body of Jesus had lain. And one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She didn't recognize him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have, I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. This morning, God, I pray that as we gather together, you would come and open our eyes and hearts to the magnificence of the work of the cross. And that, Lord, somehow you would come and speak through this moment and through these words that I would simply be a vessel into your hand and to your will. And that from this, Lord, Jesus Christ would be exalted and lifted high. In the mighty name of Jesus, 
pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I think, um, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I think the disciples were a little bit doff. Uh, first of all, they mistook Jesus for a revolutionary that was coming to overthrow Rome and claim back the, the, the uh, Israel and the kingdom of Israel, Jewish kingdom. And, you know, despite Jesus saying again and again and again that he's going to die, um, they just didn't see it coming. And here again, Mary comes and she mistakes Jesus for a gardener. And I think the reason is, is that verse 9 in chapter 20, which says they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so I heard a story last year, maybe you heard it too, about the, the Queen of England after her passing, one of her personal guards, a guy called Richard Caper or something, she used to call him Dickie, um, told the story of um, a couple of years back, they were up in Balmoral in Scotland at the Queen's holiday home or palace or whatever Queens have, and they were walking in the countryside there, and there were some American walking tourists who were walking uh, and they kind of met each other, and they got chatting, and these tourists, not recognizing the queen, said, you know, do you ever stumble across the queen? And the queen, as quick as a flash, said, well, you know, I've never met her, but Dickie here meets her all the time. <laughs> and so all the attention turns to Dickie, and uh, Dickie um, is then faced with all these Americans staring at him, and they say, well, what's she like? What's the queen like? And so she's standing right there, and Dickie goes ahead and says, well, she can be a little bit cantankerous, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. And so they then ask this lovely old lady who is the queen to take a picture of them standing with Dickie. <laughs> and then, of course, Dickie knows what's going on, and so he says, why don't you take a, a picture here also? And so he takes a picture, and you can just imagine kind of getting back home, showing the pictures to friends and family and saying, hey, but that is the queen. <laughs> and so the whole time they're standing there chatting and they don't recognize that it is the queen. They're a little bit doff. And I think, truth be told, is that we can be a little bit doff at times. That sometimes we come and mistake Jesus for someone or something that is not. That we come and we mistake Jesus for a rabbit's foot. A lucky charm that we go to for good luck. Or we mistake him for a vending machine of divine blessing. Just pop a prayer in and out comes your blessing. Or a, a butler or a barmaid that comes and tends to our every need. Or a ticket to heaven so we can escape hell. Or the muscles that comes and puts the bullies in our lives in place. Or the therapist that helps us work through our issues. Or our rich stepfather that comes and bankrolls our lives. Or the fluffy teddy bear that comes and brings us comfort in our trials. Or the moral teacher to guide us through life. Or the prophet to come and share divine words. But the truth is, is that in the context of the cross, in the context of what we are celebrating today, Jesus is none of these. And if we've ever thought that, and if we've ever behaved in such a way that we've betrayed Jesus to be a lucky charm, a rabbit's foot, a fluffy toy of comfort, then we should repent. If we have come and done this, and if we're prone to it, it might just be that we do not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. You see, the big enemy in the Garden of Gethsemane was not the chief priests, 
was not the Sanhedrin or the temple guards or Judas the betrayer or the Roman soldiers or Rome itself. And the big enemy in our lives is not your ex-husband. It's not your battle axe mother-in-law. It's not... (laughs) I wonder if that's my (laughs) mother-in-law. Bob's, you're lovely. You're not a battle axe. The big enemy in our lives is not the government, it's not the tax man, it's not your boss, it's not your job. It's not the traffic cops, it's not cancer, it's not the neighbor's dogs that just bark all night long. The the big enemy is none of the above. But it's common to all of the above. It's the foundation of all of the above. The big enemy is sin and his faithful sidekick, death. And so if you think for a moment of a house, all these unique different bricks that come together to build this structure, in many ways each brick is unique and it's symbolic of this reality. As you come and look at the betrayal of Judas, that's one brick. And you come and look at the misrepresentation of the accusers of Jesus, that's another brick. And you come and look at your husband's adulterous affairs. That's another brick. And you come and you look at your lying. That's another brick. Your cheating, another brick. Your slandering, that's another brick. You come and look at your boss's bullying, that's another brick. And they all come together to come in these unique bricks to come and build the dark house of evil that we find in the world today. But each of those bricks are unique, but united by one thing, which is that foundation that holds it all together. And that foundation is sin. You see, sin is not so much, listen carefully to this. You're going to get angry and you're going to disagree. Sin is not so much what you do. Sin is not so much those bricks. Sin is something deeper and far more sinister than that. And unfortunately, we've come and we've reduced sin to this that we do. Oh, I came and I did this. There's another little brick. But that brick finds its place on the foundation of something far more bigger, far more all-encompassing, far more sinister than that. It's this thing of sin and death. And so the question is then, what is sin? It's all the nice stuff that we're not allowed to do. As Pete used to say, it's chocolate-covered vomit. It's halitosis of the heart. It's a failure to conform to the moral law of God. But, but sin really is not something that we do as much as something that we are. So let me explain this as quick as I can. I'd love to go to the scripture, but I can't. And so I'm going to paraphrase it. In the Old Testament, there was a king called King David. And um, he did amazing things, but at some point he got a bit lazy and backfooted and a little bit pathetic. And, and when David should have been at war with all his soldiers and his army and the nation, he was at home, at his palace, on his roof, sitting on a couch. And on his couch at home, on his palace roof, he saw a lady bathing there. Her name was Bathsheba. And instead of averting his eyes, he comes and he seduces her. And when she falls pregnant, instead of coming clean, what, she, what he does is he comes and calls home her husband from the front, a man called Uriah. And so Uriah comes home from the front. But in solidarity to his men that he's fighting with on the front, he doesn't go into the home and he sleeps outside. 
And so therefore, David is unable to hide his sin because what's happened, Bathsheba has fallen pregnant with a child and he needed Uriah to go in and to be with his wife so that he could come and hide and disguise his sin, but he didn't do that. And so he had a problem. And so what did he come and do? He said, Uriah, won't you take this note back with you to the general of the army when you go back? And in that note was a word to the general that said, when the fighting is at its thickest, pull back and expose Uriah so that he is killed. And this is exactly what happened. And so Uriah is killed off the back of the note David wrote that he put in the very hands of Uriah to take back to the front with him. And so David ends up marrying Bathsheba and their child dies. And years later, David's most trusted advisor, a man called Ahithophel, goads Absalom, David's son, to come and lead a rebellion against his father. And so we come and we look at all of this, and it's a mess, but you don't actually know how big a mess it is. And so not only does David come and seduce a woman that he should never have, he shouldn't even have been there. But worse than that, I mean, that's bad already, right? But worse than that <clears throat> is that Bathsheba's husband was a man called Uriah. And Uriah is listed as, David, as one of David's mighty men. And so this wasn't a man foreign to David. This was one of David's friends. And so David comes and sleeps with his buddy's wife. More than that, he comes and he has his buddy killed to come and hide his own sin. It's disgusting. And in the process of this, he comes and he marries Bathsheba, another man's wife, and their little child doesn't make it. But years later, a man called Ahithophel comes and conspires against the man that he served for decades and goads his son into rebellion against his father. And if you come and you look at it, Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so I would imagine there is a root of bitterness in Ahithophel around the broken family that David is responsible for. And so sometime after all of this unfolds, Nathan, the prophet Nathan, comes and calls David out on his sin. And, um, and we have an incredible picture into David's response. Psalm 51 is David's response. Go and read it if you haven't read it. And um, <clears throat> Psalm 51 is, a, is a, a psalm, a prayer of David's response. He's been called out. He's been caught. He's remorseful and he's responding. And he says, he says this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely I was sinful at birth. Surely from the time my mother conceived me. And so it sounds beautiful. And it is beautiful, but there are two incredible truths here that come and expose sin for what it really truly is. And so he comes and he says, against you and you only. Who is he praying to? Who is he saying this to? He's saying it to God. And so he's saying, against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so how can David come and say this in the context of what he has done to Bathsheba, Uriah, that unborn child, Ahithophel, and the people of Israel? He sinned against all of them. How can he come and say against you, God, and you alone have I sinned? It's because... It's because he understood the deeper reality of sin. 
is because in truth, every time we come and sin, and that sin works itself horizontally into the social fabric of our world, it is first and foremost rooted in a vertical sin against God. And so this is why Jesus said the first and the greatest command is that you love the Lord your God. Because if you love God, you come and you put God first. And so you can't come and love God and sleep with another man's wife. You can't love God and come and worship an idol. You can't love God and not be generous. You can't love God and steal from your sister or hate your brother or misrepresent others or abuse people. Because when you love God... You come and you put him first. But when you don't put him first, that's the first origin, inception point of sin. You begin to put other things first. And so that's what happened when David saw Bathsheba. He's like, hmm, I want a piece of that. He's putting himself first. And so D.A. Carson says what makes sin so sinful, awful, condemning, and damnably heinous is not all its social ramifications. It is that sin is first and foremost sin against an almighty and holy God. And so this is why David could say against you and you only did I sin. Because if he never ever sinned against God, he would never ever sin against man. If he never ever stopped putting God first, he'd never ever come and put something else first. But he goes on and he says more than this. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so how can this be? How can a child that is yet to be born be sinful? How can a child that is yet to be born be a sinner? They are yet to come and breathe their first breath, let alone tell their first lie. Yet David comes and he says, from the time my mother conceived me, I was sinful. You see, J.R. Packer says this. He says, The assertion of original sin makes the point that we're not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. We're born with a nature enslaved to sin. And so if we begin to understand the true nature of sin, we begin to understand that sin is not a matter of what we do, but of who we are. I hope you're tracking with me. Paul Tripp says this. He says, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of whom or what you come and you worship. Last year, I had the privilege of going to Anfield, the stadium for Liverpool, watching a game there. And it was phenomenal. But it was also sad. We, not because we didn't win the game. That was another sadness. It was a sadness because of the religious fervor that you see of those people in that stadium worshiping. It's so easy to come and point. Ah, look at them worshiping football. The truth is, is that we are all worshipers. And we all worship something. 
And so that which we worship is really that which we come and we think about most often. That which we long for most deeply. That which we prioritize as most important. That which we come and spend our finances on most easily. What we worship is really what we come and we organize our lives around. And sin at its heart is simply coming and organizing our lives around anyone or anything other than God. Most often... It's ourselves. And it's so naturally built into us, into the fabric of our being. We come and we worship at the altar of self without even thinking about it. Before your little beautiful baby said their first word, which probably was mine, there was knitted into that wonderful child a predisposed nature to come and say mine. And to come and build their life around themselves. And so what we worship is really what we organize our lives around. It's what we come and we place as most importance in our lives. It's that which we come and put first. And now the problem with this is God's preeminence. It's a very big fancy word that speaks of the preeminent attributes of God. Or the attributes of God's preeminence, sorry. And the attribute of God's preeminence tells us that He surpasses all others. Okay? God surpasses all others. It tells us that He outranks all others. It tells us that He is first. The preeminence of God, Him being first, tells us that God can never, ever be second. He can never, ever be second. God can be many things, but He can never, ever be second. And the problem with sin is that sin seeks to put either ourselves or something other than God first. Or to put it another way, sin seeks to put God second. And God just cannot be second. It's against his very nature. And so if you come and you put two boxes in a ring, they're both winners, they're both fighters, they both want to be first. It's a little bit like God coming and being together with us. We're both fighting to be first. And those two fighters in the ring, you know, it doesn't matter. They'll go 12 rounds and it might be a very, very tight call at the end or it might be a knockout in the first round, but there's always going to be one winner. And when we come and we look in the context of us in the ring with God, it's just not a fair fight. It's like putting a labradoodle in the ring with a lion. It's just not going to work out well for that labradoodle. And so God, knowing and understanding that we would not make one round, that we would not make 10 seconds, let alone one second, in the ring with him, in his great, great kindness, takes the fight outside of the ring. And so this little mini-series is called A Tale of Two Gardens, but really it's the tale of three gardens, the third being the Garden of Eden, the third being the Garden of God's presence. And so as Adam and Eve come and eat the fruit, which we all know is the avocado pear, right? Only an avo could bring sin into the world. If I could indoctrinate one thing into you people, it's not to eat avos. The truth is, is that the, the, the sin of the world was not in the flesh of that avo. The sin of the world was not even in them eating that ever. The sin was in their hearts. Right? It was in their hearts. That in that moment as they stood there, God said, 
do not eat the fruit. And the serpent said, eat the fruit. And in that moment, they had a choice. They could listen to God or they could come and listen to the serpent. And whichever one they came and listened to was the one that they came and they put first. And so we know in the end they came and they chose to listen to the serpent, to come and gratify their own selfish desires. And in that moment, in putting them first, as they're in the ring, in the garden of God's presence, God says, sure, we've got to take the fight out of here. And so Genesis 3.34 says this, God drove out the man and at the east of the garden Eden, of garden, the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and ter- that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so the big enemy is not the chief priests or the Sanhedrin or Rome. The big enemy in your life is not your boss, your neighbor or the bully at school. It's not even your lying, your cheating, your thieving. It is the foundation and the source of all of the above. It's sin and death. And it's the inherent nature inside of us that comes and insists on worshiping ourselves or the things of this world rather than God. But God, thank God for the but gods of Scripture. But God wanted to somehow come and restore the garden of His presence in our lives. And we see glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament. Most vividly, we see it in the temple system. That in Jerusalem is this massive temple with all the courts the outer court, the inner courts, the Gentile courts, the ladies' courts, the men's courts, the priest's courts, and right at the back in the middle is a place called the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and obscuring the entrance was a, a curtain as thick as a man's star, a massive, massive curtain. And no one dared to go in there because that's where the presence of God would come and dwell. But for one day on the Day of Atonement, the priest would come and take the blood of the goats. It was a goat, the blood, and he would prepare himself to go into the Holy of Holies through the curtain. And he would come and he'd put a, a massive robe on. And this robe had tied to the bottom dried pomegranates that would rattle. And there were also these bells that would jingle. And he would kind of shuffle up to the curtain, and there was this jingle and this rattle that you would hear. As he got there, they would tie a rope to his leg. And then he would take the blood of this goat, and he would go in there. And as he went in there, you would hear obscured through the curtain the jingle and the rattle of the priest in there. Come in, fearing God. Because if God did not accept that sacrifice, he would be struck down dead. And so as long as they heard the jingle and the rattle, they knew that he was alive. And I shudder to think of the first time that it happened, that they didn't tie a rope to a man's leg, that he went in there and he died. And they were, how do we get him out of there? Lesson learned, always put a rope to his foot because we don't want to go in there after that. And so if God did not accept the sacrifice that came in there once in the course of the year, on the Day of Atonement, the jingle and the rattle would stop and they would yank him out by that rope 
But so long as there was a jingle and a rattle, the people on the outside would say, he's alive. He's alive. Our sacrifice has been accepted. He's alive. And so why is it so important that we understand that Jesus must rise from the dead? Why is Easter Sunday so key? Why is the risen Christ so precious to us? Why is the resurrection the high point of our calendar? It's because if you listen carefully, you can hear the jingle and the rattle that says he is alive. Our sacrifice has been accepted. Can you hear it? The jingle and the rattle of the work of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is the dark garden of betrayal. It's the one side. On the other side, we've got the empty tomb and the garden of victory. This is the gospel message sucked into one very simple analogy. You see, the cross and the garden of betrayal is Jesus being delivered up for our sins. And on the other side, we've got the garden of victory, his resurrection, which comes and tells us that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has been accepted Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 4. Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses. There's the garden of betrayal. And raised for our justification. There's the garden of victory. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he was acting as the high priest, going into the presence of God, into the holy of holies, to come and to make atonement for our sins, not with the blood of goats or calves, but to come and make it with his own blood. Hebrews 9 says as much. It says the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest go, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that, that have come, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so as long as we're ignorant about the importance of the, of the resurrection, we will come and mistake Jesus for a revolutionary or for a gardener or for a ticket to heaven or a rabbit's foot or a teddy bear of comfort or a therapist to come and ease our conscience or a moral guide to come and show us how not to sin. But Jesus died on the cross on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And Jesus' resurrection is the is the declaration, is the the jingle and the rattle that comes and says his sacrifice was accepted, that he is alive. This is why his rising from the dead was so important. Now, if you for a moment imagine Jesus and the work of the cross over here, and we are some distant from that, it's his work. It's what he's done. We can't come and claim it. We can't come and boast in it. It's what he's done. And we, we're on the outside looking in and we're saying, how can we get a piece of that action? How can we get in on that? If that's how you come and atone for sins, how do we come and get a, a part of that? How do I get in on that? And the answer is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing, it's a gift from God, not the result of work so that no one can come and boast. And so this is the high point of this. I'm really trusting that. I'm not going to speak in rainbows in this moment, but that the truth of God is going to come and land in your heart as I come and share what this means. And so it says, says, we've got a problem, an issue of sin, which is not just about what you do. It's, in fact, who you are. You can't help come and worship other things other than God. It's so deeply knitted inside of you. And so how are you saved from this? It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace and faith comes and saves you from your sins. And so what is grace? Well, thank you for asking. Right here, if we carry on reading, it says, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. This is grace. Grace is not something you can come and lay claim to. It's a gift that is given to you. And what is faith? Well, it goes on and it says, not as a result of works so that no one can boast in it. When we come and we do our own work and our own effort, we're proud of what we've achieved. We boast in it. Look at the race I ran. Look at the car I restored. Look at this business I've built. Look at my house I've come and renovated. We're boasting in our works and in our efforts. But when we come and we boast in the work and the efforts of another, it's the starting point of faith. It's the inception point of faith that begins to work through there. It's not what I've done, but what he has done. Don't look at me. Look at what they have done. Look at what they have achieved. It's the starting point of faith. And let me tell you where that faith leads. It leads to worship. The more magnificent the work, the greater the worship. And so if at the heart of salvation is the restoration of proper worship. Remember we said that earlier. That, that, that if at the heart of sin is the issue of who we worship, then salvation is an issue of the restoration of proper worship. You follow that? And so salvation comes to us through the worship of God, through the worship of Jesus. This is what you have done, Jesus. I cannot boast in this. This is magnificent. And so you know what faith is in Jesus? It's the worship of God. It's coming and saying, I don't trust in myself. I can't trust in my works or what I've done. I come and I trust in the finished work of the cross and what Jesus has done. And so if the source of sin is improper worship and the source of salvation is proper worship. And the way that the cross has worked itself out is we cannot lay claim to it in any way of our own effort, only through the worship of Christ and believe in him and put in our faith in him. And so we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We're saved in worship alone in Christ alone. And when we do this, when we begin to put our faith in Christ, when we begin to worship Him, we begin to put God first and we begin to magnify His preeminence. And the beautiful thing with that is that when we begin to do that, two things happen. The first is, is that if the improper worship of God results in our nature being predisposed to worship in self and things other than God, then surely 
salvation and the proper worship of God, namely Jesus, would come and restore our nature. Do you think that's possible? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And so all of a sudden, you're a little bit more predisposed to come and love God. I remember when I got saved, the first thing I did was I bought a CD and I began to sing and worship God in response to something that God was doing inside of me. All of a sudden, I wanted to come and exalt Him and make much of Him. And that was the new nature that began to direct me and organize my life around God. And so two things happen, right? The one is that our nature begins to shift and we're more predisposed to come and worship God. And it's a journey of more and more and more organizing our lives around God where we come and put Him first. But the other thing is that when we come and we, we deal with the improper worship of self and we begin to worship Jesus and we exalt Him and we put Him first and we put ourselves second, you know what happens? Is God welcomes us back into the ring. And no longer is it a boxing ring, but it's the garden. It's the garden of His presence that He draws us back into. And we get to come and bask in and enjoy the incredible privilege of God's presence. It's the restoration of the work that began the moment God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He was working to come and bring us back to the garden of His presence once again. And so why is the resurrection of Christ so important because it's the restoration of our relationship with God. And so as I finish, maybe the musos can come up. As I finish, I want to, maybe I should have just done this because it's going to be one minute and it's saying everything I want to say this morning. And if you were getting the devotionals through the course of this week, this is Friday's devotional. On the New Gen WhatsApp group, the Holy Week devotionals, this was Friday's devotion. And it says, the great passion of the writer of Hebrews is that we draw near, that we draw near to God, draw near to his throne and to find all the help we need, draw near to him, confident that, we, that he will reward us with all that he has for us in, in Jesus. And this is clearly what he means in Hebrews 10.22 when he says, because <clears throat> in 10.22, because verse 19 says that we have confidence to enter the holy place, that is, the new heavenly holy of holies, like the inner room in the old tabernacle of the Old Testament where the high priest met with God once a year and where his glory descended on the Ark of the Covenant. So the one command, the one exhortation that we are given in Hebrews 10 is to draw near to God. The great aim of this writer is that we get near God, that we have fellowship with him, that we not settle for a Christian life at a distance from God, that God not be distant through a distant thought, but a near and present reality that we experience, what the old Puritans called communion with God. This drawing near is not a physical act. It's not a building a tower of Babel by your own achievements to get to heaven. It's not necessarily going into, into a church building or walking to an altar at the front. It is an, in, it is an invisible act of worship. You can do it while standing absolutely still or while lying in a hospital bed, or while sitting in a pew listening to a sermon. Drawing near is not moving from one place to another. It is a directing of the heart. 
into the presence of God who is as distant as the Holy of Holies in heaven and yet as near as the door of faith. He is commanding us to come, to approach him, to draw near to him. Won't you take a moment, bow your head, and just reorientate your heart in an attitude of worship to God? And in a minute, we're going to take communion.